1: Hello, I'd like to give a bad English accent shout-out to Dan Hunter, the Englishman in New Zealand, and also to Richard Kubrick, not Stanley Kubrick nor Rubik's Cube, both of whom this show is for you. The Major Spoilers Podcast covers news, reviews, and of course,
2: spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later.
1: I'm Matthew, and yes, we have no Rodrigo. We have no Rodrigo today.
2: And I'm Stephen, and you are listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans.
1: In this issue, we soldier on mightily, even though we're missing a wheel. Or is it a third wheel? I pity the fool. I pity him. How much boot could a reboot boot? If a reboot was rebooted, Stephen's still pissed that they canceled Legends of the Dark Knight. Bald guy and beard guy go head-to-head, and this time it ain't me and Schleicher. Plus, the mean streets of Madripoor just got a little more dangerous. Faithful spoilerites sounding off, and... It was raining in the Big Apple. A hard rain. Hard enough to wash the slime from the streets. Somewhere out there, Mal is waiting, smiling, waiting for my hands around his neck. My dream now, I want to be the all-being master of time, space, and dimension. Then I want to go to Europe. The Major Spoilers Podcast is on the air!
2: Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting issue of the Major Spoilers Podcast. That is right, Rodrigo is out this week once again. Here, here, just listen to
3: this. Hey Major Spoilerites, I'm Rodrigo, and I'm not in this show either. And I'm probably not going to be in the show for uh, at least a couple times, depending on how uh, we're recording the, uh, the bonus episodes as well. Because, um, well, I've been using this excuse that I've been having to work, but actually I've been having a most excellent adventure through space and time, and if I don't finish my report in time, I will never graduate and save the world by playing a cover of a Kiss song that is a cover of an Argent song. So, um, I'm not going to be around. Don't worry, though. Uh, Critical Hit comes out this weekend, and I will be there for that, um... And so just, uh, you know, don't leave too many comments about like, how the show is so much better now and uh, how, you know, Matthew's so much funnier and how it's great not to have those dead spaces and stuff. Just just tone down on those, okay? Just a little bit. All right, guys. Catch you later. Bye.
2: And, of course, Dante, still out. He says he's got the H1N1. Although every <laughs> time he calls, he's like, uh, 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 Mr. Steven, I can't come into the to The show today, <laughs> and yet and I he hear giggling girls. It, I know giggling girls in the background, so I don't know he what's always up with pronounces that. it Juan Win." I'm not sure. <laughs> I call it the Heine virus. All Heine. right, we Matthew and I will once again attempt to entertain you with our stories Even
1: about the comics and the lacking books. as we do a voice of reason <laughs> or any type of real. Well, the show the
2: is gonna spiral into madness, I tell you. <laughs> Oh, come
1: on. It's two fat guys sitting in a room arguing. (laughs) One bald
2: and one with a beard.
1: That's right. Technically, it's two rooms since I'm in uh, In the Stately Spoilers Manor East. Yes, that's right. The annex, if you will.
2: You know, speaking of uh, a bad transition. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Stephen. We need to get to some news. (laughs) Lots of movies getting a reboot. And one of the biggest ones that... uh, Kind of getting a little buzz, at least for me, that has kind of a a soft spot, is the A-team.
1: They're the A-team. You know they're soldiers of fortune. They're the A-team fighting people in need. That's not how the thing goes. I don't think it is either. So we finally (laughs)
2: get to see the first shot of all four of the actors together. And I'm just curious if you had a chance to take a look at that, Matthew, and what your thoughts were of the whole whole cast doing their best to uh, imitate an 80s uh, television (laughs) franchise.
1: I gotta admit, it wasn't bad. They managed to... Well, I I will say this. There was some photoshopping involved. Yes, you can see the bad outline on a couple of them. Yeah, their, their unsharp mask needs to be just a little bit more unsharpy. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's well handled. It's a good piece. It gives, you know, the nature of the characters. It gives you if you're a fan, if you're an A-team guy, you can look at that and go, you know who's who. Right. You can tell who the face
2: is. You can tell who tell Who the Hannibal is. You can tell who the crazy one is.
1: Right. I like what they've done with uh, Rampage as uh, BA, mm, which yeah. I think is nicely handled.
2: Yeah, yeah. It looks good. I just don't, I guess the problem I'm having still with this movie is in the 80s, we were just not too far away from Vietnam. And we still had a bunch of soldiers of fortune. Soldier of fortune magazine was a big item. I remember a lot of the kids in my my middle school were like, "Oh, soldier of fortune! Look back here. They tell you how to kill a guy, and look, you can hire a guy to go kill a guy for you." And I was like, "Okay,
1: can I hire a guy to kill the guy that I hired to kill another guy."
2: <laughs> but I'm just I'm just curious if you know these guys are Gulf War One veterans on the run. Mm-hmm.
1: But well, soldiers
2: of fortune? Do we do we have soldiers of fortune today, or do we just have gangbangers?
1: That I believe we do. Yet still have soldiers of fortune. I believe that there are mercenaries. All in, in fact, I, from what I understand, you know, not like I know, because <laughs> I'm a I'm a 38 year old house husband who works in a call center and and moonlights on a website talking about comics. And I'm in Western so,
2: Kansas, so there you exactly.
1: Go. Let me tell you what I know about soldiers of fortune is pretty much limited to the original A team. And maybe, you know, some Chuck Dixon backup stories in G.I. <laughs> Joe. But I believe that there are mercenaries and soldiers of fortune now in places like Rwanda and...
2: Oh, well, yeah, you know, sure. But Ikarogba. in Los Angeles? But I wonder in well, Los Angeles?
1: But I'm sure that this is, I mean, this is something that it doesn't lose its relevance. In no. fact, I feel like it's more relevant because, you know, the Vietnam War in 1989 was, or 1984, 85 was still... At least 10 years in the past, right? there wasn't really anything in terms of really active conflict right. in the United States with a possible exception, maybe Grenada, yeah. stuff like that. I mean, right now, the concept of ex-soldiers probably has a lot more resonance than it would have in 82.
2: Yeah, quite possibly. So
1: I, I, I mean, I can see that and I... I have to say these guys don't look old enough to be Gulf War 1 veteran because that war was what 91 to 93 Well, they
2: could be easily our age. I mean that's I mean we could have easily been in the in the in the <laughs> GW1.
1: We well, it would have required for me to have a few less twinkies and for you to have a little, <laughs> little less cricket.
2: Actually, I had a lot of uh, I was just a skinny guy at that time, so I needed a little bit more twinkies and you needed You were a, a relatively
1: skinny guy, but you had that big rubbery head. So. Yeah.
2: But, you know, looking at these guys, any one of them could have been GW1s.
1: What's interesting is even at 19, you had the head of a 40-year-old fat man. You, just, you had to grow, I to
2: grow into it. It, yeah, it I had was those really cheeks. kind of weird.
1: All right. You no, know, your entire head. You, it was like your entire <laughs> head was 20 years older than the rest of you. And it stayed in stasis as your body caught up. Yes. Your skull.
2: Yes. All right, everybody. Head over to the, Major the com website. Check out that A-team image. It's pretty awesome. Uh, I hear Reboot is getting a reboot. When did this series come out? This was also a late
1: like 90s? 90s. Yeah, I mid think 90s, it was all about 90s. the same time that we were in school. The thing that I like about Reboot is if you reboot a reboot, is it a three-boot or have you unbooted?
2: Well, let's not get into the whole Legion of Superheroes thing just yet. Uh, but yes, a reboot of a reboot. Not only is it a three-boot, Matthew, but the company, Rainmaker Studio, they're actually planning a trilogy Of reboot
1: movies. So it's a three-way reboot. So it's technically a cube
2: (laughs) root. Well, you know, if you want to think about it that way, quite possibly perhaps, because that was kind of the whole thing, the whole shtick of the show was this GameCube would come down, not a Nintendo GameCube, but this cube would come down and interface with, uh, what was the name of that city? I've only watched like eh, maybe less than a dozen episodes of, of reboot.
1: You know what I know about reboot? There was this one hot blue girl. Yes. And it was one
2: of the early 3D animated television that's, shows. That, that's
1: literally what I know about Reboot. All right,
2: all right. There was this one hot blue girl. Well, see, we should have talked about this before the show began. Now we have nothing else to talk about in the news segment. Oh, Twice wait. That. We do have some other things to talk about in the news segment.
4: Reboot.
2: You know, I don't care if they reboot that series. It it probably is deserving. I know there were a lot of fans of the series, and the first time it was canceled, people kind of voiced their concern. And then they brought it back again, and it lasted for, I think, one more season. And then it went away again because they just, I guess, weren't getting the market share. But among the older audiences, uh, you know, it was quite popular.
1: I believe it's on... I want to say that what it was on ABC when I was in college.
2: Yeah, it was ABC C B S. It was one of the primetime.
1: And it was a change. little young for me, but I remember watching uh for Schoolhouse Rock episodes in and around it, because that was about the time of the Schoolhouse Rock review. Revival, yeah.
2: Yep. I want to hear from some listeners. I want to know how many of them remember Reboot and if they are excited about seeing a movie or if they've now moved past
1: nine. Reboot. Nine listeners remember Reboot. <laughs>
2: Probably not the 17-year-old out there in California kicking back. Nah,
1: he's, he's busy dressing up like Wolverine.
2: <laughs> Speaking of Wolverine, we just concluded our Major Spoilers Costume Contest. All the entries are in, and all of us behind-the-scenes people, Matthew, myself, <laughs> yeah, these are Rico, some big scenes. <laughs> Sam, Sam, Stacy,
1: Victoria,
2: we have all been casting Dante. our votes over the last 24 hours so of which Brian. ones... We, Gilligan,
1: uh, <laughs> the, Stewie Griffin, <laughs> Merv Griffin.
2: We have been uh, tabulating I'll our votes of which ones that we like the most, and we've narrowed it down to five.
1: Five. Five. And wow. I got to tell you. In my defense, they were not the five most naked. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the young lady who dressed as the Star the Spangled Kid, Stargirl. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful costume, and it wasn't even, like, overtly, it wasn't, like, pervy kind of Star Girl costume, right. but it definitely gave me a new perspective on what that costume would look like in a real-life girl.
2: Yeah, you know, that's one of the cool things about costumes is that when put on a good body, now, the Deadpool one, this guy is an actual bodybuilder. He sent a picture of himself outside of the costume, you know, flexing his muscles at some competition. The guy is built like a, you know, a rock. Uh, like the rock. Well... Maybe even more powerful than The Rock. Uh, But, you know, when you put people like that into costume, they really, really, really look good. Uh, Then you have other people who may not have spent as much time on their costume, and it kind of shows in the end. But I think all of the entries this year are really good.
1: And I think that having the best costume doesn't necessarily give you the best chance of winning. No there are times when having an overly slick costume or an overly slick production can work against you. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I I agree with you there, but I tell you what listeners, if you haven't been over to the major spoilers.com website and checked out the entrance, the entrance, Boba Fett wearing a (laughs) t-shirt. Probably. (laughs) Yes, it does, but that's not for that article.
1: No, it's not, but I'm all of a sudden looking at Boba Fett and it (laughs) looks like Victoria is standing here and Boba Fett's wearing a t-shirt and then, Darth Vader is wearing a, a black business suit. <laughs> yes. Cracking up here.
2: This year, we allowed people to enter more than one costume. So the Stargirl is the same person as the Supergirl who's fighting her evil twin, which just so happens to be her sister. Um, let's see. The person who did the—well, actually, I should say Dan Hunter is one of these people that entered which... this year. Which one is Dan Hunter? I'm gonna let you guess, Matthew, and see if you can figure out which one is. Well,
1: I'm gonna look Hunter. for the one that looks most English, so I'm gonna okay. say Judge Dredd.
2: No, you would be wrong. That's a is family he a, out of New Jersey,
1: I think. Is he a Justice Lord?
2: No, he's not.
1: Is he is he Poison Ivy?
2: <laughs> no, he is not Poison well, Ivy. If we know
1: he's not Poison Ivy, then he's not Wolfreak, and that knocks is, us like right in half.
2: I tell you, he is not a traditional comic book character
1: is he jane cobb
2: no although i did like that entry
1: he's not a traditional comic book character yes
2: but he is a pop culture character and he has appeared in comics
1: is he the darkness no he's not the darkness no. is he the shade
2: He is not the shade but you need to scroll down just a little bit more is he the
1: terminator he is
2: the terminator
1: Oh, he's very good. Get yeah, to the chopper. I
2: have to show you the close-up picture that he sent. Of his I wonder face. if
1: I can combine this accent with an English accent and talk like <laughs> Please that.
2: Please don't. It'll probably cause some rift in space-time and blow everything up.
1: Crikey. I wish I had myself some fish and the chips.
2: <laughs> we are going to start the voting on the Major Spoilers Contest. Probably by the time that you're listening to this, if, you, if you're one of the uh, few hundred thousand people that downloaded on the day of release... Head over to the Majorspoilers.com website and begin voting.
1: Hello slightly in the future, people.
2: The other thing I want to make sure that we get out is that everybody head over to the Major Spoilers forum and check out the post about the best of 2009. We want a lot of people over there talking about what was the best and worst of 2009 so that in our December show, whatever one that ends up being at the last week I of the year. believe it will be
1: my birthday, actually.
2: Then on the next week, in the first week of the new year, we will talk about the best and the worst of 2009, and we want to make sure that we get your comments in on that. Also, man, i got to tell you, Matthew, we have had nothing but positive response from Critical Hit, the Major Spoilers Dungeons & Dragons podcast. We've been featured multiple days on the front page of iTunes, which is really, really cool, and I just wanted to take a moment and tell everybody thank you for all those five-star comments that you're putting both on the Major Spoilers uh, podcast and also on the Critical Hit podcast. Because it's just uh, doing some fantastic things for us.
1: It's good to have something that Rodrigo is almost entirely responsible for. Yes. So that it doesn't feel like you, me, and that other guy. Yes, exactly. (laughs) He's listening right now, isn't he? Yes, the other guy is. Hello,
2: future Rodrigo. (laughs) All right, everybody. We're going to take a quick break,
1: and we will be right back. Hi there. I'm Matthew Peterson, the incorrigible co-host of the Major Spoilers Podcast. Thank you, dear. That was my wife. She's just probably my martini. At the top of every show, you may hear me talking about some of our darling listeners. A shout-out, if you will. If you'd like me to say something about you, all you have to do is make a donation of at least $10 to the Major Spoilers Podcast. Simply done by clicking on the donate button at Majorspoilers.com. Every little bit helps keep that site up for another month and the podcast running just a little bit more so you can have a little bit more of me and my wit and my wisdom and the charm that I bring to the comic book world.
2: Uh, Matthew, I think what you mean to say is so we can bring the major spoilers experience to you, the faithful major spoilerite legion of fans.
1: Shut up, Schleiker. Schleicher.
2: This issue of the Major Spoilers podcast is brought to you by Past Generation Toys. With action figures from DC and Marvel, there's bound to be an action figure for you. Visit them on the web at pastgenerationtoys.com. It's time for that segment of the show that everybody likes to listen to. Are howling Matthew. I want to see how long I can go without <laughs> that, breathing. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Until he passes out, and then I have to carry the
1: show by myself. Yeah, that little trill. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All
2: that right. Seems... We've got a couple of books Get this pressure. week. We've Ooh. got uh, a DC Ooh. title from me. Go. Go. No surprise there. Yeah. And a Marvel title from Matthew. I will start off no. by talking about uh, Batman. Confidence. Go.
1: Spock. Suborbital
2: meteor. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to talk about a Batman title. Surprise, surprise. Matthew, have I told you how much I hated the fact that, that DC canceled, canceled Legends, Legends of, the of the Dark
1: Knight? Now you no, heard this.
2: Steven, tell me about it. <laughs> they should have never canceled Legends of the Dark Knight. It was a perfect series to talk about some of the early stuff about Batman. Instead, they, they had replaced that it. Cool with. a
1: cool pink cover.
2: Instead, they, yes, that first uh, series. They had a blue, a pink, and a yellow, I think. Maybe a green, too. I think there were four of them. Uh, but DC replaced Batman Legends of the Dark Knight with Batman Confidential. And the interesting thing about Batman Confidential is it doesn't always take place in the far past. Some of them take place in, in some nearer times, such as the case with the last five issues of Batman Confidential, ending in uh, number 35, which featured the Bat and the Beast series, which, if you think about it, what they're really kind of talking about or hinting at is the KGB Beast,
1: or KGB Beast. Uh, but in His this time... or partner, the NKV Demon.
2: You know, in this, in this version they are actually kind of twisting the beast around into not a, um, you know, soldier of fortune type person that the KG Beast was, but this one's an actual beast. This guy has a bad skin condition that he literally looks like a monster. And for the past four issues, he and his boss, Fyotov, the Tsar, have been ruling the Russian mob with uh, fear that the Beast is going to kill them. And the guy is pretty strong. I mean, he looks like a Bane-type character, only without a mask and covered in hair and fur and shag. Um, and in order to... The whole story, this is the final issue of the story, the whole story has been that the Tsar and the Russian mob are trying to go into Gotham City and take over the city, uh, the the uh, the crime become the crime lords of Gotham, which means that Batman has to go to Russia. And in his... Uh, pursuit of bringing down the the crime bosses he crosses paths with the czar who in turn thinks that uh, the police the head of the police is not working with him uh, working against him and so he kidnaps the wife and the daughter of the police chief commissioner whatever this guy is a lieutenant or whatever he is he's a powerful policeman and this final issue is essentially the beast flipping around from this crazy, out-of-control monster that just goes on a killing rampage whenever his boss says something and says, essentially, there's no point in killing innocent women and children, and instead turns on his very boss. Uh, Of course, Batman is involved. You can't have a Batman story without Batman.
1: Well, you can. In fact, some of the best Batman stories have (laughs) little to no Batman. Uh,
2: But essentially, the Batman convinces the Beast that he doesn't have to be a monster and... Once the czars and the crime lords are all starting to fall apart, Batman offers this uh, beast treatment so that he can—it's—it's it's like some genetic defect or something, something that can be reversed. But right before his treatment, the beast breaks out of the hospital, and he is so inspired by Batman, he becomes the Beast of Russia. I am the Beast. Whereby he goes Hello, around the beast. fighting crime. He says, "If if the U.S. if USA has if USA has." Uh, Batman, uh, Russia has the beast, or I'm sorry, the bear, that's what they call him. The bear. Moscow I am has beast, the bear. bear. And that's kind of how the series yeah. ends. For a five-issue arc, this was not one of the best Batman confidential arcs uh, that we've had in a while. The best one by far is the King Tut one with the Riddler. That was the best Batman confidential arc by far. This one's okay, and it just kind of, I don't know, it... it Fails a lot in the fact that we're trying to relive the the height of the Russian Cold War, and it just doesn't work in in this sense. Well, it's um, in the past. It is, but it just you don't feel the oppression of an American in Russia trying Rito, to do business.
4: It does
2: take place in the winter, so you do get that uh, classic Russian winter, which you know becomes a, a pretty much a stereotypical trademark for Moscow.
1: Um, well, of course, it's never warm in Moscow. Apparently not. For this. <laughs> I don't know lyrics.
2: The art is okay. The art by uh, uh, who is this? Uh, Andy Clark is fine. Andy it's, Clark. Yep.
1: Oh, not Andy Smith. No. My
2: bad. I, I think the the art is really well done. I think, and it's probably not his fault, but whoever does the inking, uh, I don't like the little. The little dot dot, 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 that they use to try to outline something, you know, to give facial features or to shade something, and they just use these really close, like, dot patterns. Yeah. I, I just don't like that. That's something that kind of turns me off. And it seems like a lot of people are trying to go the route of, um, um, uh, Quietly. They're trying to go that route by trying to add a, so much detail and lines into every fold of cloth that, unless you're Frank Quietly, it doesn't work.
1: It's difficult.
2: Yeah, and so the art is fine. The colors are fine. Uh, Peter Milligan, who does the writing, you know, the writing is fine for what the story is. And it's it's a fine tale. It's just not a super great tale. Uh, and so I think at the end of the day, for Batman Confidential number 35, I really only have to give it about two and a half out of five stars. Wow. Which, you know, for me, I've not been a big fan of the Batman Confidential series for a long time. Actually, since issue one. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to see how this next arc goes, but it may fall off my radar again and fall off my pull list for a time unless they can really wow me with a good story uh that could have actually been in Legends of the Dark Knight.
1: <laughs> it's all about Legends of the Dark Knight, isn't it?
2: Man, that was that was one of the, you know, that series came out about the same time that I was getting into comic books and I was yeah. just amazed that, oh, okay, I can read this um, you know, um Dark Knight Returns book and read about the future of the Batman, I can right. read the current Batman and Detective comics that are out there, and I can go back and learn about the past and how Batman got some of these cool things with Legends of the Dark Knight. So that, that you know, what is it, the hat trick of Batman titles at that time really did it for me today. With all the thing with all the crazy things that are going on in the Batman universe, with Bruce Wayne being dead or not dead or in the past or in the future or whatever that's going on the with him, of the
1: past is where he is.
2: A new Batman uh, in the form of Dick Grayson, um, you know the crazy stuff that goes on in the Superman Batman series. You really yeah, don't, don't have though. this this whole cohesion of Batman <laughs> to where you might actually go, huh? I wonder how he got the Batmobile. Oh, let's go read a six issue arc about that in. Batman Confidential.
1: Well, and I've always said that there's room for more than one portrayal of a character. Well, that's true. And I, I feel like we should be able to read a two-fisted, smiling Batman of the 1950s at the same time that we can read you know, that snarling Dark Avenger of the Night and the 70s love god, hairy-chested Batman that Neil right. Adams did. Right. But the problem when you do that is that it does tend to water the character down a little bit to where there's no definitive version and I think that's probably what we're running into with a lot of comics honestly and well yeah that's true I that
2: kind of leads me to my review well wait I was going to say one more thing because I know you said you wanted a few more minutes this past week and I'm going to guess next week too Mm -hmm. DC has been running a preview of Batman Doc Savage on sale November 11th Written by Brian Azzarello, art by Phil Noto, who I'm in love with him as an artist ever since that uh, Supergirl Batman or Supergirl Superman arc um, a few, probably a year and a half ago. Everybody probably knows by now I'm a huge Doc Savage fan. If you haven't guessed, I'm a huge Batman fan. You get your chocolate into my peanut butter, and I'm going to bet from the preview pages that we're seeing here, this is going to be a most awesome issue, and I cannot wait. I mean, this takes place in the 1930s. This takes place at the time when Batman came around. This is essentially a year one universe for Batman. Batman has just come on the scene as all these pulp heroes, the Shadow, Doc Savage, the Blackhawks, um, the Spirit, all these others have been around for a while and are ensconced in, in that universe's history. This is actually the Batman that carries guns. We see Batman, even in these preview pages... Whipping out and firing guns, not probably to kill, that's not what it looks like in the preview, but certainly to distract the bad guys as he makes this getaway of this bungled uh, uh, robbery attempt. We barely get a glimpse of Doc Savage, which works really well for me. I'm thinking that the person walking in, they don't have word balloons here, the man's hands look uh, rather large. So I'm thinking that's, uh, is it Rennie, the guy, the two-fisted engineer? I think that's who that is. Certainly not. I think you're right. Certainly not Hambrook's or, uh, Monk. or uh, Monk. So I just, Phil Noto's artwork Could rocks. be Long Tom. Could be, because he is rather skinny and he's got the, uh, the shortened sleeves on the jacket. But I cannot wait till November 11th, Matthew.
1: Probably Long Tom.
2: I cannot wait till November 11th. I'm going to try to do a day of review of, of this when it hits. November 11th. Batman, Doc Savage, number one.
1: Doc um, Man, Bat Savage.
2: Unfortunately, it's a miniseries but there will be other adventures coming up. So there's kind of a two-in-one for you this week.
1: Awesome. Speaking of (laughs) two-in-ones, Spider-Woman used to appear in Marvel two-in-one with The Thing. And now she is in Avenger, and uh, has her own series written by Bendis and Alex Maliev, or drawn by Alex Maliev. And Spider-Woman is one of the most unique series I've run into because it is released first in its digital incarnation right, as the flippy flippy book for the iPhone, and then later is released as a paper comic. Now, not having an iPhone, not wanting an iPhone, not being able to afford an iPhone – I think I have a copy of Brick Breaker (laughs) on my phone. I have not seen the motion capture, the motion version of Spider-Woman, Agent of Sward, but I would like to review an actual – You hear that? You're going to do it like this. Yeah, but that damages my comic. Oh,
2: come on. You really think these things are going to be worth something in five years?
1: I don't care what they're worth. I'm not going to damage my comic. (laughs) Look, what do I do for a living? I either fight for IR or I protect these comics. I go in on Sundays. I spend eight hours just bagging and boarding. It's a very zen experience, and it allows me to feel like I do something so that when I go back to my job as an ineffectual middle management suck-up and or working for you. <laughs> Luthor dollars, man. You're getting paid in Luthor dollars. Yeah, I know. And that and a cup of coffee will get you. Wait. A cup of no, coffee. <laughs> Spider-Woman, agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. S.W.O.R.D., forgive me. Spider-Woman, three- to Spider-Woman, Agent of Sword, issue two came out this last week. Uh, Jessica Drew, of course, the Spider-Woman, a genetic experiment created by agents of Hydra, who then became a superhero and then was abducted by Skrulls and replaced, and then became the figurehead of the Skrull invasion of Earth, has returned to her old stomping grounds in Madripoor, the scary, scary island nation where Wolverine used to have an eye patch. Jessica wakes up this issue after being arrested last issue. She's in jail. She's had the snot beat out of her. She wakes up in a jail cell and immediately thinks to herself, and this is actually some pretty brilliant character writing, where she's talking about how she could break out of this jail at any point, mm-hmm. Bust, but busting out isn't going to tell her what she needs to know. She could literally rip the windows out and fly away into the night, but then she wouldn't have the information. Can she really fly? Yeah. Spider-Woman can glide with her web wings. Oh, Okay. Um, but she stays in jail. And I gotta say, Maliev's work, um, I'm mostly familiar with from Daredevil. Mm-hmm. I want to say he did a run on Alias as well, but that may have been Michael Lark. I get them confused, but he really gives Jessica Drew kind of a sensitivity in her face that makes you want to look at her and go, aw. which really works for the plot. Jessica tries to manipulate the people who've taken her in and about halfway through the issue. She does something. I don't know if you remember recent issues of New Avengers.
2: Oh, yes. I remember them clearly
1: because I read every issue that comes out of Marvel. I know you do. There was a moment where uh, all of the New Avengers were like talking and Spider-Woman's like, look, I have to tell you guys something about my powers. I have these pheromone powers that makes you love me. And Luke Cage and Spider-Man are both like, oh, thank God we're married. (laughs) She starts doing her pheromone thing and telling this guy how scared she is and how she just needs him to help her. And of course, he's completely in her power. And she feels so horrible. It's, it, again, it's one of those moments where it's it's Bendis' internal monologue. And when it works, it works right. really well. Right. Does it work here? Yes, it works very well. Because she's, she's telling him how scared she is and how, how wonderful it is that someone big and strong is going to protect her. And then she's thinking about how terrible it is to do this and how she should feel bad, but... You know, it, it's a power. It's something she can do. So she basically pheromones this cop into walking her out of the police station,
4: cool. letting,
1: letting her go, at which point he's killed. They get outside the door. Somebody blows his brains out, and she's attacked by a flying car. And somewhere out there, Avery Brooks is mad that she got one and he didn't.
4: <laughs>
1: but uh, there's a little bit of fighty-fighty where she's running from a flying car. It's a nice sequence. It's uh, one of those spiral garages. Yeah. That you see in like the transporter movies. Right. So the flying car is spinning down and Jessica's jumping from level to level. And we get to the end and it turns out she thinks it's a shield op. She Mm -hmm. thinks that it's a flying car from shield. We get to the end. Criminals show up and they all get murdered. And of course, policemen show up and they all get murdered. And it turns out it's not a shield flying car. It's a Hydra flying car. Uh Oh, and the last words of the episode are, Come give Mama a hug. uh Oh, as some green-haired woman leans out of this flying car. Oh, now there are a couple of things about this sequence that are a little silly. The, the flying, flying carpet. The flying cars, when done in the past, when when Starenko was doing flying cars, they were cars and the wheels would fold down and they would fly. Right. This this literally looks like a seventy-two Mustang with great big jets on the side. Have it you... looks like Doc Brown got together with Doctor <laughs> Doctor Robotnik. And decided they were going to make this flying car. Have you seen that
2: trailer? Just This is kind of a diversion, but have you seen the trailer for this Russian film called Black Lightning? We posted it up on the Major Spoiler site. I did see that. Where it's this flying (laughs) car that's like 72-whatever flying around and the guy's using it to fight crime. Like this or not like
1: this? I like it, but then I like Viper, too. Okay, well. And uh. he didn't even come to Viper the vendors. Now, (laughs) the woman looks like Madame Hydra, the Viper. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) she didn't come to bite the vendors either. But um, I think it's supposed to be Jessica Drew's mother. We're going to call her Miriam Drew, I believe. But I'm not entirely sure. If If it's meant to be Madam Hydra, I'm wondering if it's really the Madam Hydra we've ever dealt with before. Either way, some chick from Hydra has shown up in some seriously high stiletto boots and an outfit that walked straight off the ramp at Baby Dolls. Hey, hey. Um, M does really good work with the art the issue it suffers from a a little bit from not much happened syndrome Mm -hmm. Jessica wakes up Jessica finds out where she is Jessica says I'm leaving and then somebody attacks but there's a little bit more substance than sometimes happens when Bendis is doing a character piece Mm -hmm. Jessica is a very interesting character she's very conflicted she was an agent of shield and an agent of hydra at the same time right which is interesting you even as the reader sometimes it's hard to listen to her you know her little thought balloons and not think maybe she's lying which is cute the art's very well done the one thing that i will say is if you're going to make and i don't think you should but if you're going to make a character's um physical um attributes all right i'll just say it her breasts that much of the character you need to be consistent in how you draw the breasts david finch and the guys who did new avengers had jessica in power girl territory right and here they've scaled it back and wisely to me they've scaled it back but if you look at the cover of last issue done by Alex Ross, right? They were big old bazooms. They again. were. They yeah. Basically, we're looking at like a 1957 Zeppelin bra. I'm not saying that breasts need to be central to the character, and I don't think they do. But I think that we need to be consistent about it. I I don't like it when you have a character drawn by David Finch, who you know everyone in the room is just like, well, she's so purty, from uh neck to the shoulders. You know, and and then to go to the point here. Now, I actually prefer what we see here. So I really enjoy, you know, the the rendition here. Overall, this is a three and a half slice of meatloaf affair for me. It's Bendis doing what Bendis does well. Yeah. is doing some really good art. Mm-hmm. I'm still on board. I'm still interested in where Jessica's story is going. And it hasn't done that. I haven't had a conscious moment of this is padding for the trade yet. Right. Generally, that'll come around issue three or four. So when I get to issue four of six, we'll see if I still feel this way. But right now, this still feels like a good start.
2: Have you watched any, and you said you don't have an iPod, but, you know, we featured some of the trailers to the Marvel Motion Comics Spider-Woman Agent of Sward. And I guess the thing that shocked a lot of people is that Jessica Drew had a British accent or an English accent. Does Why that, is that shocking? I don't know. Is that something that should be shocking?
1: having read Drew, an issue. Jessica of... Drew's parents were English. She grew so. up. There you go. She grew up in Transia on Gore Mountain, the same place that the Scarlet Witch grew up. And the Scarlet Witch is routinely given a, a vaguely middle European accent when she's done in cartoons. So, ah, OK, I don't have a problem with Jessica having, you know, a British intonation. Oh, now,
2: no, I'm just I'm just saying that there were a lot of. Commenters when we posted those previews saying, "Oh, I just never pictured her with that kind of an accent." Maybe well, I wonder if it's because they think Spider Woman, Spider Man, Peter Parker has a is yeah, here's an American. The thing. There's four, Peter Parker, an American accent. Peter
1: Parker is from Forest Hills, right? Which is in Queens, right? You know who else comes from Forest Hills, Queens? Who? Archie Bunker. Peter, <laughs> Peter Parker should be talking like this. Uh, all right, craving the uh, craving the horrible uh, whatever thing is there. Uh, with great power comes great responsibility, see? It's, it's like that day.
2: <laughs> so you like, you for the most part, like Brian Michael Bendis?
1: I don't hate him. Bendis okay. is a good writer. He's one of those guys that I like better on his own work, like Powers. Mm-hmm. I love Goldfish. I love Power and Glory, if you ever get a chance to read that. A little-known Bendis bit that's just awesome. I don't necessarily. Uh, okay. I'll come out and say it. I hate his doctor strange mm-hmm. because his doctor strange. is always wandering around Zenyatta Mondada. What do you think of his ultimate stuff? I don't read a lot of ultimates. Um, I liked bits and pieces of ultimate Spider-Man. Yeah. But ultimate Spider-Man. Uh, there's, there's an apocryphal story. Steve Rude, who drew Nexus. Right. Yeah. Uh, supposedly was called and, and, somebody left a message or something that asked if he would want to draw something in the ultimate universe. And apparently Steve's response was when they called him back, he answered the phone and screamed, the only ultimate Marvel universe is the one Stan and Jack created and hung up <laughs> for me. I, I, I echo that sentiment, probably not to that same psychosis, but yeah, Bendis's ultimate work is good. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like maybe he's Sowing fields that other people planted.
2: Well, yeah, but that's the whole point. And I and I guess from my perspective, my really only gateway to Marvel is through the Ultimate Universe, and I get all these stories. I had asked Matthew before the show started, listeners, uh, if he by chance was reading the Ultimate Comics
1: Armor Wars, and Matthew responded with, "I read it the first time." Yeah,
2: well, see, I never did. So you know, for me, and
1: Clayton did it twenty years ago,
2: right. And you know, I never read the um uh the the clone saga, yet we were presented with that for about, I don't know, it seemed like twenty issues a couple uh, of years ago.
1: More than
2: that. Yeah, Bendis is probably about twenty issues.
1: Bandic uh, issues, Bendis issues.
2: Uh but
1: you know, yeah, I that's it was about that's twenty really... issues and it was about thirteen issues worth of story. Right. Uh
2: but that is how I get my Marvel fixes through the ultimate universe. And I enjoy what they're doing with Ultimate Spider Man and And uh, really, Ultimate Spider-Man, because I really don't care for the rest. But it does bring up
1: murder everybody in the Ultimate Universe.
2: They did in Ultimatum, which kind of it's a weird reboot.
1: Spider-Man and Phoenix and the Texas Twister and Lilandra Naramani are like the only people left alive.
2: Yeah, they. Who's that?
1: Professor X's girlfriend.
2: Oh, okay. Uh, I know that some of the uh, Avengers are still alive. Uh, Tony Stark is still alive. Fantastic Doesn't Tony so Stark alive? have an
1: inoperable fatal brain tumor? I don't know. I think, you know, he might have been one of the ones that I would say... Wolverine is dead. Yeah, I, I, I'm not entirely sure with this whole introduction of, of Tony Stark's brother Richard as the new <laughs> Iron Man. Have you seen this? Uh-uh. Yeah, it's not good. Okay.
2: Well, uh, that does bring up our next
1: segment oh. here. It's time. <laughs> When the reviews are over, the bald man and the man with the funny beard go head to head, but this time, it's not personal. Really? No, it's not.
2: No, it's not. You know, Matthew, you've been having this Jones. I have. Oh, wait, we got to say it's time for the. Go oh, ahead. there you go. Get it out. The
4: week, 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 week. Welcome, my son. <laughs> Welcome to the Poll of the Week!
2: Matthew and I have been having this discussion on and off for, I don't know, a couple of years now. Ever since the site launched, so at least three. (laughs)
1: Let's say dating back to May of 1989, (laughs) as Uh, (laughs) virtually all of our discussions do.
2: Matthew and I have had this discussion about who really is the better writer over at, at Marvel right now. Is it Brian Michael Bendis who in a sense, is writing all of the Ultimate stuff and starting to dive a lot into a lot of the mainstream Marvel stuff as well.
1: Bendis has been writing New Avengers for over 60 issues, I think.
2: Or is it Matt Fraction, who did a kick-ass
1: run on Iron Fist? And Daredevil. And Daredevil and a bunch more. And I think he did a chunk of Thunderbolts, didn't he? I don't know. Now all he's on is, Uncanny Germans.
2: It's not, you know, I didn't read Iron Fist until you said, Steven, you need to be reading Iron Fist because all my reviews that. are really good. and
1: you just read Iron Fist.
2: And I really like, I like that series a lot. Now, do I like Matt Fraction better than Brian Michael Bendis? Well, that's kind of the question that Matthew posed to you and to me and to himself <laughs> this week in the Poll of the Week. <laughs> so we've kind of already discussed the pros and, I guess, the big con for Brian Michael Bendis for me, is he does get a little wordy. Just a little bit. Little? Yeah, just a little bit. And that whole uh, that whole time decompression, don't mm. care for it. He's gotten better, I will say this. You know, there was a time, especially like I said with that clone saga bit that they did over in Ultimate Spider-Man, that thing just went on and on and on and on. And then all of a sudden, as we started building up to Ultimatum and now lately in the uh, in the rebooted Ultimate Comics universe... uh he's actually started to rein himself in not with the words but in uh expanding that story into 6 issues when it really could be told in 2.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's my biggest complaint about Brian Michael Bendis. Otherwise, I think he's a great writer. I think he you know, he really creates a voice for his characters that sound unique from one another. Mm-hmm. Uh Matt Fraction loved every single moment of Iron Fist. But it seemed like in that Iron Fist story we only got things from either Orson Randall's perspective or from um, Danny Danny Rand's perspective. And that was it. And we really didn't have a lot of other interchange with the other characters, at least in that first volume that we read. Mm -hmm. So I can't really tell if Matt Fraction really has the ability to tell, to really capture that other character's voice really well. That's how I kind of look at the two right now. What are, you, what are your cons of, of Brian Michael Bendis? And then, and then please elaborate why, why Matt my, Fraction
1: is, is, your, is your current bromance. Uh, my, my cons for Bendis. Okay. Bendis is a big light bulb over the head guy. Bendis is the guy who you will get to something and you will go, now that's, that's a fascinating concept.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I don't know if you ever read Alias.
2: No, I did not.
1: Alias was a very I watched very the TV series. Alias had an excellent plot and it had these moments where you're just like, that's amazing. And then they came to the point where the big plot point was human growth hormone as a drug mm. mutant mutant powers as a drug.
4: Mm.
1: And then I went, what? That, I mean, that big idea. If you don't buy into that big light bulb over the head idea, it's hard to buy into independence. His okay. dialogue is great for the person on the street, but doesn't fit Reed Richards or Tony Stark or Dr. Strange. Okay. You can't have Dr. Strange talking like Jessica, uh, Jessica. What's that kid's name? Simpson. Yeah. Simpson. No, (laughs) Jessica Jones. Thank you. Okay. Or Jessica Drew for that matter. All the women in, in Bendis comics are named Jessica, Jessica storm, You know, Jessica Gray from the X-Men, you remember her. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. Fraction, on the
1: other hand, Fraction I've loved ever since he wrote a book called Five Fists of Science. Yeah, with uh, Tesla and Mark Twain and some other guys. You have to love anyone who would come up with – and at the point in time that this was coming out, we had Planetary on the stands. Mm -hmm. We had League of Extraordinary Gentlemen on the stands. We had a lot of these – historical pastiche things right but it's just amazing that something like that would come together and I, if you read that book even now i i dragged it out and read it the other week because there happened to be something that reminded me of it it's so wonderful in that historically it makes sense. And the villain, I don't know if you remember. I, I haven't read it. I've just. If you remember, if you remember about. Lance Lippert's uh, yeah, classes on Introduction to Radio. Of course. The, one of the villains is Guglielmo Marconi. He is a villain. So is Tom yes. Edison. He's a, he's a villain in this piece. Why is he a villain? Because he's trying to steal credit for radio from awesome. Nikola Tesla. That is That's awesome. That's what's awesome.
2: I'm going to have to get this. this is to I'm putting this on yeah. our list as a future, future must review.
1: Absolutely. It's very, it's very awesome. Very kind of proto steam punky. Yeah. But it's interesting. It's an interesting read and it does something that I get from fractions work a lot. It takes something where you're like, I would never have thought of that, but it's so neat. <laughs> it's like, you know, the other seven cities of heaven. I'm not sure if that was all fractions concept, right. but isn't that cool? That's one of those things where you're like, well, iron fist really is cool. I like iron fist. There's seven other guys who are kind of like iron fist. Mm hmm. And each of them has their own mystical city to protect. That's like a light bulb once, once in a lifetime light bulb over the head moment where you're just like, that's brilliant. That's like saying it's bigger on the inside or their clothes are unstable molecules. Or so the guy dresses up as a bat. See, that's one (laughs) of those ideas where you're just like, if you only have one in your life, enjoy it because that's an idea that, you know, that's one of the greats. So, so I, I vote fraction.
2: Okay. And I voted Bendis because that's who I have the most exposure to.
1: Well, as per usual lately, the <laughs> faithful spoilerites are leaning towards the Matthew position, or again, as I like to call it, being right. Whatever. 187 votes. It's kind of a slow week. It,
2: well, actually, it's been a, actually, this has been a close race. And actually, I got this poll up late in the day because I was too busy with the major spoilers costume contest.
1: Oh, well, there you go, schmuck. I know. of the cast right now, or roughly, um, I'm going to say 94 people, maybe 96 people. Some people. (laughs) I correct me up. It's about 60 people. 56% of the vote right now leaning towards Matt Fraction and his terrible hat. 44% leaning towards Brian Bendis and that weird sheen on his head. Are you still convinced
2: that Matt Fraction comes into your store all the time?
1: I didn't say all the time. I said that I believe and have been told that Matt Fraction does, in fact, go around to stores and that gatekeeper happens to be in his, uh, you know, his writing aura, if you will.
2: Where does it? Is he out of Kansas City?
1: Maybe well, he is. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I, I want to think... say that he's out of Kansas City. He's. Oh, let's see. Hang on a second. What happens? If I push well, this button.
2: You push that button. I'm going to read what Brother 129 says. He says in every organization, you need big picture guys and detail guys. Bendis is a big picture guy. He thinks about the major concepts, all the cool swerves and plot twists, and even clever dialogue moments. When he tend- where he tends to fall apart is in the total execution of completely cohesive story. You'll remember his story for a few cool moments and a cool characters, but you'll be left scratching your head at plot holes and endings that tend to be letdowns after doing such a great job setting the stage. This is why the lead up and beginning of Secret Invasion is cool as hell, and the ending left all of us empty. Fraction, on the other hand, is a details guy. He not only has great ideas, but you can see the evidences of work uh, work to build an intricate plot and cohesive story with a clever beginning, middle, and end. There's a real weight and sincere effort to echo Marvel continuity. Fraction should be the next guy they tap to write Amazing Spider-Man, not Bendis. Bendis tends to hit big home runs, but when he's off, he's really off. Fraction has been a model of consistency and a writer who I really believe is on the verge of something special. So in summation... Bendis is the flashy SUV that's a great ride, but poor on gas mileage. Fraction is that dependable car that starts up every day and gets you from point A to point B no matter what. That's a pretty good argument. I, I like that argument. I have to say that argument holds a lot of water. I will be reading more of Matt Fraction just to see if my mind can be changed.
1: Yes, you will. You know what you should totally read that Matt Fraction writes? What's that? Invincible Iron Man. See, it's Iron Man. It's a
2: Marvel comic. Does he write now, anything that's not Marvel? No. <laughs> oh, okay then.
1: Now, here's something. You did not ask me who the best Marvel writer is, because in a, in a fight between Matt Fraction and Brian Bendis, the best Marvel writer is, in fact, Jeff Parker.
2: Oh, I thought you were going to say Stan Lee. Stan Lee? Have you read <laughs> some of the stuff that Stan did? I read, what was that, that last Fantastic Four story that I wrote like a year ago, two years
1: ago? I like Stan, but Stan is not... Um, careful careful we're
2: trying to get him on the
1: show no I'm not saying that Stan isn't a genius but Stan is not um, what's the word I'm looking
2: for I like I like Stanley because he can write an entire epic galactic spanning story in the space of 12 pages in like an hour and a half you know? Yeah, yeah. alright everybody uh, you can head over to the Majorspoilers.com website cast your vote for the Major Spoilers Poll of the Week Brian Michael Bendis or Matt Fraction it's right there in the right column we'll be back right after this
5: Hey guys, it's uh, Sally O'Reilly. I just listened to your uh, podcast on Blackest Night and um, some thoughts occurred to me about the connection of Batman to the story which you briefly went over. Um, so Blackhand has Batman's skull for the entire thing and the important line is that he says, um, you're connected to them all. I was thinking that this might be on a more metaphorical level because um, the whole, the whole um, theme that Jeff, Jeff Johns has been establishing since um, Greenlight and Rebirth has been of black as the colour of death and the colour of the universe. And you think about it, the well, hero in DC known predominantly to be black is Batman, and he's um, he started to be Batman based on his grief and his parents' death. So there's that connection there. And additionally, it also to, that also connects to um, how he himself recently died in Final Crisis. Um, Lots of people disagreed with Batman's use of the gun to kill Darkseid, but Clark um, Morrison explains it, and I quote without a squad's accent um, The root of the Batman mythos is the gun and the bullets that created Batman. So in Final Crisis, Batman himself is finally standing there to complete that big mythical circle and to have the image of Batman up against the actual personification of evil, Darkseid, and now he's got the gun and he's got the bullet. So, yeah, there's that connection. Additionally, um, it's still a bit shady as to whether Batman actually did, because um, he got shoved into that whole Omega-sanction thing of Darkseid. So, you know, you see his body, you see someone very like him at the end of Final Crisis, in the Stone Age, um, carving out a little um, bat symbol cable. So I think that's going to be a major point um, of Gwen later Batman one because um, the solicitations show that the um, if the issue with Batman and Robin, that comes after Philip Town's run is over with Cameron Stewart, um, has been um, bumped a month in the same way that Black as Night has. So I think. Um, Dan did um, an interview about this, and he said that it's because um, that issue has huge repercussions for the DC universe, just as Black as Night does. And I think that's a smokescreen. I think the two are very much connected in that we will find out at some point that Blackhand, Blackhand in Black as Night does not have Batman's skull. He has, I don't know, the skull of some other some other Batman, some other character, and it works because it works because it's connected to the Omega Sanction and similarly that issue of Batman and Robin drawn by Cameron Cameron Stewart will connect to the eventual digging up of Batman and um, Bruce Wayne by Dick Grayson and the quest to discover where exactly he is there was a little preview image um, at the end of issue one of Batman and Robin which had um, um, a sort of bat corpse rising out of a um, um what do you call him? Lazarus Pit, one of our Girls, Lazarus Pits. So that that's 'cause this whole um the whole quest to I this way would probably have major effects on the fact that his skull might or might not be being used as a weapon in lack of flight. So yeah, that about that's wraps up my whole point. Although right, I have to I have to say, um you know, that no one's actually um no one's actually seen any connection between uh Black and and the Resur- and the Resurrection and Lazarus pits. You you sort of want to have Vasel Golds just standing in the background of the issue going what where's, where's, where's my stick gone? Okay, that wasn't very funny. You, you guys are probably funny. Okay, that is everything I have to say. Uh, good luck with the next podcast. Hello,
3: this is a super radio. I got the song for the Matthew, it goes like this. <laughs> So anyway, that's pretty much what I do when I'm driving back home for hours and hours is just beatbox uh, video game tunes. i catch you guys later. In
2: 1962... The Hunter was released by Richard Stark, actually Donald Westlake, Westlake writing under the name of Richard Stark. The plot is about a criminal called Parker, or Walker as he was called in Point Blank, and Porter in the movie Playback, who's been betrayed, shot, left for dead by his partner and his lover, and he embarks on a relentless quest to retrieve his money and wreck Wreck
1: revenge. I think Rack Revenge would make a really great name for a, a noir <laughs> hero.
2: It actually might be a better name for a WWF wrestler or something.
1: Rack Revenge and the Nation of Domination? Yes, exactly.
2: Possibly. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are talking this week about Parker the Hunter, which is an adaptation. It's actually Parker. done by Darwin Cook of Richard Stark's story. So it's got a lot of the story that you're going to find in it. But it's done... I got to say, as a book itself, Matthew, this is done as a great book because it looks like a hardbound book that you would get maybe back in the 70s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah. And it probably is going to sit nicely on our shelves as the series continues to come out. It's about the size of a little hardback. But, man, once you open it, it is comic book Darwin Cook goodness.
1: Yes. I I like the fact that even, like, the frontispiece – has that little Art Deco bits and pieces yes. little pictures to it? It feels like an actual book. It does. Like a like a, like a bookie book. I ain't bought one of them in like ten years. Or I something.
2: I would be very interested to see. We've talked before about uh, comic books being used as a gateway into literature. I wonder what would happen if someone used Richard Stark's Parker the Hunter, adapted and illustrated by Darwin Cook, in their classroom as an introduction into like noir c- crime or crime thriller type stories uh, that uh, Westlake did or Stark did. What should we call him? Should we call him Richard Stark since that's what he wrote under?
1: Let's call him Stark. Okay.
2: It's uh, the
1: same thing as Richard Bachman. I mean. Yeah, Stephen King. Richard Bachman wrote the mess. Stephen King wrote Firestarter.
2: Aha. Richard Bachman wrote what was to become The Stand. Right. Or, and I'm not, sorry, not The Stand, but Stand By Me. And right. Stephen
1: King wrote The Stand. Exactly. Richard Bachman wrote wrote The Running Man, or indeed the show that led to the thingy thing.
2: And not the the dance
1: people, not the Danish. Right. (laughs) Stephen King wrote a letter stringently arguing with Maine power and light for their decision to turn off his electricity.
2: (laughs) So let's get back to The Hunter. This is the first in the Parker series, and I don't know, there were like 46 of them written over... I'm sorry, 23 of the Parker novels written over 46 years. Um, This is one of those anti-hero books where mm-hmm. Parker is not, you know, everyone's like, oh, he's this great criminal. Well, I hear that and I think, well, he's a criminal. And yes, you can have the lovable George Clooney type criminal that you see in movies like um, uh,
1: Oceans 11, Oceans 11 and 12 Oceans and 13, 12, Oceans 13. But, you know, George oh, Clooney,
2: George Clooney doesn't go around putting a gun to the back of people's head and blowing the blowing their heads off or strangling the Julie Roberts love interest, although I think some people wouldn't mind if he had done that in the movies. <laughs> but Parker is not a good guy, Matthew. I mean, it's pretty evident. Not. It's pretty evident as the story starts out where you just see this this person walking down the street and they just hunched over kind of attitude. And he's just telling people to go to hell and he's punching people and he's mm-hmm. not taking crap from anybody. And you're like, OK, I can see this guy is not happy. He's not a good person. You know, he's going in and he's creating a fake identity so he can withdraw money and buy himself a new suit. And you know for the first part I'm thinking, "Eh, this isn't such this isn't such a bad thing. This guy seems pretty clever. He seems pretty smart." And then we get to the page where he's beating the crap out of people and killing people and it's like, "Wait, a minute. What is it about the anti-hero that people love? What is it about the Wolverine? What is it about the Parkers? What is it about the the person that you really shouldn't like but you can't get enough
1: of? They do what we wish we could do. At the beginning of this, he stalks basically Stalks into New York, walks across the bridge, walks in, you know, he, he jumps a turnstile, finds a quarter or is given a quarter, goes in to buy a cup of coffee. While he's there, he's flirting with this hot waitress, takes her cigarette, you know, leaves her the quarter, thanks her for the thing and, you know, goes out. It's just this moment where he's supremely confident. He's very good at what he does. He immediately goes and forges his own driver's license. Right. That's what's fascinating to me, is that he's going through this whole process, fakes his driver's license, walks into a bank, and this is 1962, walks into a bank and tells him, oh, sorry, my name is Edward Johnson, and I've lost my checking account.
2: Using well, a very don't... common name, Edward Johnson. Right. He's then they, had to go they don't into have a anything. Banks.
1: He goes into – we see three or four banks, and in that fourth bank, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Johnson, here's your new checkbook. And then he starts writing checks.
2: All of this and, done – uh, there are in the first probably thirty pages of this book one mm. two three four five six seven eight eight word Maybe. balloons nine word balloons in this whole tw- first twenty seven pages. I just yep. love how Cook is telling us a story that you know if we were reading this in in traditional prose it would be all spelled out exactly what was going on we'd probably see what was going on in Parker's mind at the time
1: right but, but we see it visually on the page which makes him even more remote and in some ways making him more remote makes him more interesting right because it's not like it's not like a a philip marlowe voiceover where it's like you know the dame was blonde you know it's it, it literally you're you're viewing this man's world and right now he's he's got nothing but he's in a situation where with a little bit of brains. And a little bit of, uh, I don't care if I get caught. He very quickly puts himself in a good position. He takes that checkbook. He buys a bunch of watches. He then pawns the watches for cash. Mm-hmm. You know, he buys himself some new clothes in a, in a hotel room. And you're just, you're going through this whole sequence of this is kind of neat. You know, this is what I wish I could do. Yeah. And but then, then, then you
2: get to the part. It's like four in the morning at the hotel. All of a sudden he'd been awake. And with the vodka still strong in him, so he came straight here. And the next panel is him cracking a girl across the jaw and saying, get up, cover
1: yourself. Yep. Make me coffee, woman. Move it. And it's offensive in a way because you're just like, you know, no. That's the first point where I went, wow, this is not a good character. This is not a nice person. But then we find out, you know, why he does what he does. It doesn't justify it. But it gives it some depth. Turns out this is his wife, and she betrayed him and left him for dead.
2: Yeah, the whole thing is he is he is a thief, and he works with a a select group of people to con people out of their money. Right, and a con goes wrong, and he's essentially double crossed. And the person that's double crossing him convinces the wife to shoot him, to shoot Parker, mm-hmm. leave him for dead in it's like California somewhere. And burn the place to the ground, and then they are going to escape and and live off some $80,000 plus money.
1: Mm -hmm. That's big money in 1962. That's the
2: part, that's the, as we go through the story and they're talking about how much money Parker wants back, he wants like $45,000.
1: Yeah.
2: Today we'd be laughing at that, but in 62, you know, that's like 10 years worth of wages.
1: $45,000 in today's money is the equivalent of. Uh, the battleship Potemkin. I think <laughs> for forty five thousand dollars in nineteen sixty two, you could buy Ecuador.
2: Well, so but again, why do people love the antihero? Why do we love Wolverine? He's not a nice guy. He because, kills people, slashes them up. But Parker Wolverine, beats his wife eventually. Wolverine her.
1: does what we wish we could do. Parker does what we wish we could do. People have wronged him. Everybody understands being wronged. I was wronged today. Now, granted, it was just some schmuck refusing to take an escalation. But, you know, if I could have gone in and, you know, beaten him up and taken his money and his wife and smoked all of his cigarettes and. Right. I might have for a moment there. Parker was betrayed. Parker is now using only his wits and his, you know, strong keen eye for vengeance is going to come back and get these people in power, these people who put him where he is. He is one man against the system. Right. A world gone mad. Right. He, you know, you will root for the villain. And that's exactly what this is. He's, he's a man with a code of behavior and a code of honor. Yeah. And that code may not say, uh, don't beat your wife. And it may not say, you know, don't go out and kill people for money. But it does say you take care of yourself. You settle your score. You know, you do these manly man, old school kind of John Wayne wah ha things that, right. that nobody gets to do anymore. Yeah. And that's why it has to be said in the sixties. And that's why it has to be a matter of $45,000. To me, looking at that $45,000 and going, that's not very much money at all. That's not the point. That $45,000, that's Parker's money. Right. Parker is going to get his $45,000. He doesn't want all of the money. He doesn't want to go and rob these people blind. He wants his cut.
2: Well, and that's the whole point, is he does make a point that he wants his cut, and then when, and I forget who the character is, when the character comes out and says, uh, I'm not giving you the money, then he's like, okay, I'm going to kill you. And he spends a good part of this this book trying Mm -hmm. to track down the people, the main people, that that wronged him. And yep. he goes about it, I think, in very clever ways. He tries to figure out what hotel they're in, and he finds out the hotel by finding out what this person's vices are, and, it, and it's hookers, high-dollar hookers.
1: and $100 um, a night hookers. <laughs> $100. Now, that's $100 in 1962 money, which means well, it's the equivalent of eighteen thousand four hundred and twenty. dollars Did you do bucks. the
2: inflation cal- calculator? I did the because, math and then uh, I carried one. Forty five thousand dollars in nineteen sixty two dollars would be three point one six million dollars in two thousand eight dollars.
1: How much would a hundred bucks be?
2: Uh well carry the one and you're probably looking at a hooker that probably lives pretty well, and in fact she does It's seven hundred and four dollars, thousand dollars.
1: Seven hundred and four thousand dollars? No, seven hundred and four dollars, but I rounded it say, up to a thousand. If a hundred bucks turns into seven hundred and four thousand dollars, I'm gonna be a hooker in nineteen sixty two.
2: I like how this story is told via flashback too. You know, for the most part, we don't know why Parker is after um, Mal. Mal. We don't. We don't know why. We see him go rough up a um, small-time mob guy. We see him go rough up a uh, car loan guy or a car salesman who knows Mal. 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 And we don't really know. But then we get the story told to us in flashback. ah that cough switch we get the story told to us in flashback and how yeah he is messed up over his wife shooting him and Mm -hmm. leaving him for dead and running off with this guy who hey let's face it this guy is not a good-looking guy parker is uh is george clooney compared to this guy
4: Mm -hmm. it's
2: like if george clooney and i were standing next to each other i'm the one that ran off with the with george clooney's hot wife and George Clooney's tracking me down. Yep. Or Lee Marvin. Have you seen these movies that the Parker novels have been adapted on? There's Payback that had Mel Gibson. I have and, seen that. And there is the, um. Bah, 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 what's the other one with uh, Lee Marvin in it? Point Blank. Point Blank. Have you seen that one? I have seen that one as well. And that one was made in like
1: 1967? Seven, yeah. I saw that on uh, either TCM or... One of those classic movie channels one night. There was there was a series of them that were running all together. There was that. There was like a Matt Helm movie. Oh, yeah. And something else. But I remember seeing this because I had just seen Payback when they were running Point Blank. And I think that's ah, why okay. they ran it. Okay. Payback I saw uh, when I first moved to Topeka, actually. Angie Dickinson, I believe, <laughs> plays the one. hottie chick.
2: Well, that's amazing because, you know, this book came out in 62. Uh-huh. And... Within five years, it was such a big success that Hollywood was already making a movie out of it. Probably even sooner than that. Probably within four years, they were making a movie out of it.
1: Yeah. I
2: believe Angie Dickinson survives. Oh, in that movie? Yeah, I believe so. Well, originally in the in the book, the way Richard Stark had written it, uh, Parker does die. But his editor loved the character so much, he says, well, change the ending. Make this a character that lives because he's so clever. And I'll publish three books a year that feature Parker. Right. And and I think that's really interesting. Again, this person that has no problems killing people. And by the end of this book, you know, we're kind of skipping over a lot of the stuff. There's not a lot of stuff to be had here in that it is this guy trying to track down the people that wronged him and doing it in a clever way and setting him up, up everyone in such a way that by the end of the issue, everyone that's wronged him, even the people that have double-crossed him mm-hmm. in trying to cover up and protect those that have wronged him, are all dead yeah
1: and And he goes riding off into
2: the the into the sunset
1: in that cadillac what's interesting to me is it's it's set up into four sub chapters book one book two book three whatever right mal who is initially his target dies before the beginning of book four Mm -hmm. but at that point in time he's found a bigger target right which I really you know I really like it. Uh, there's some dark I, stuff in here.
2: Yeah, I like the double crossing of the of the mob guys. Mm-hmm. I think that was played out really well.
1: Yeah.
2: And and essentially him going, "Hey, I want to go talk to the big fish." "Oh, well, this is the highest up you get. I don't care. I'm going to go talk to the the bigger fish." And I <laughs> like how that I like how that plays off. It does work really well. Um and you know, even though he's an anti-hero, even though he beats women, kills women, uh, blows guys' heads off when they're least expecting it. I cannot wait until this summer, summer of two thousand ten,
4: mm-hmm.
2: when the next volume of of the Hunter series comes out from Darwin Cook.
1: Now, I will say that, and uh, well, I'm I'm going to flat out say we are the man. We are two middle aged white males. <laughs> if you have if you have issues with misogyny, violence against women, if yeah, you have true. issues where you know, sexism in a comic or sexism in a book is an issue. This is probably not the book for you. This is a very sexist story. It's set at a sexist time, which doesn't necessarily, right. ex- you know, exclude or accept what happens. But the the female characters in the book are pretty much exclusively whores. Right. Even Parker's wife at the yeah, beginning, you know, we've discovered that she actually is a prostitute. Yeah. She kills herself during the book. Yeah, you know this is this is kind of two-fisted, manly man cock rock adventure. This is
2: this is the you know the noir crime mm-hmm. of the time. You know this is what pulp fiction type stories come out of. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, yeah, it may not be for everybody, but I really like how Cook has adapted something that has become very, very popular for a very, very long time.
1: And Cook does it beautifully. The first sequence where he, he walks across the bridge and he, you know, he builds himself up out of nothing basically. Right. And we see, we don't even see him clearly until he's already forged his driver's license mm-hmm. and he goes into the bathroom at the gas station to wash up and try and straighten himself up so he can steal someone else's identity. That's something else. I mean, nothing he does in this book should make us feel any empathy for him
2: oh yeah no i don't i i don't really i think i was there was a point up until he punched his wife former wife current wife whatever that i was like hey this is going to be a pretty cool book and then for the next hundred pages Mm -hmm. i was like i don't know if i like this guy but but by the end i'm like okay this is a satisfying ending that does show this character progress and change and come to some kind of well Maybe he doesn't come to some kind of realization about himself, but the reader comes to a realization of who this character is, and they can maybe not identify with him, but they know where he's coming from and know where he's where he's going. I can see that
1: I think it's it's interesting to look at Parker as he's very i mean he's he's essentially just this brute force guy he's yeah, the he kind is. of character that you love to see Lee Marvin play he's the kind of character that you love to see you know guys like what's his face um Dean Martin yeah you know involved in stuff like this he's the kind of character who doesn't necessarily carry a gun doesn't necessarily think real hard he's got two fists see and he's going to punch you in the face if you give him any trouble he responds to everything with the same careful planning mm-hmm. and swift and blinding violence yes it, yes. I mean, it, with Parker, it's all about, all right, I'm not going to kill you today. You, you did what? You took my money. Now I'm going to kill you. Right. So again, if, if you look at it, if, well, if you, if you're into the noir fiction, if you like a mystery novel or in this case, more of a suspense novel, because there's not a lot of mystery going on mm-hmm. there. I mean, there's some discovery and there's some bait and switch going on. If you understand what you're getting into with a novel like this, I think it's a very good choice. Not for kids. Certainly. No,
2: no, no, no. This is a uh, uh <laughs> not eighteen only book,
1: please. Not something that I would recommend for those who are, you know, sensitive of thought. <laughs> not something that I would look at. You <laughs> it's know, not it, a PC book, let's put it that no, way. No, it's not a PC it's book. Not a it's not MacBook a book either. if you're if you're the cat shut up. <laughs> MacBook. I
2: Bean525 says, I picked this up and read it over the weekend, both in preparation for the episode and for the fact that Cook's art is gorgeous. I was not disappointed. At first, I had a bit of a difficult time wondering, caring what was going on, but once the story kicks in, you realize the first bit is establishing Parker's character, complete and utter badass. It's a testament to the art, and this was conveyed so well without words. I also appreciate the fact that the book is divided into sections. I could read 40 or so pages, set the book down for a bit, come back, pick it right up. Mind you, after a certain point, I didn't want to put it down at all. I'm anticipating the next book in the series, and I'm going to see about tracking down some of the Parker novels, Hopefully the Major Spoilers crew enjoyed it as much as I did. I got to say, I said I'm going to sit down and read this and maybe read a few pages and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. I read this in one sitting. I stayed up way past my bedtime, and I read this in one go and enjoyed every minute of it. I think probably the biggest draw for me is Darwin Cook's art. Man, this guy does incredible stuff. Now, granted, a lot of people were first introduced to Darwin Cook's stuff in um, um what is it, not Final Frontier, but uh, Sil- the Silver Age book, the Final Frontier that he did for DC. DC, DC
1: Comics, the New Frontier. Yeah, New Frontier, Final Frontier. Psh, what am I thinking? Uh-huh.
2: Uh, and his stuff was really good there. But reading this,
1: why would God need a starship?
2: <laughs> reading this, it's almost like his art is so evocative of the time period that it almost feels like you picked up a McCall's magazine or something. And you're reading the, an ad for furniture or reading an ad for Pan Am or something. Mm-hmm. The other thing that kind of strikes me in his portrayal of the women of the time is uh, the Playboy Comics uh, stuff that they had in the Playboy magazine at the time. Also really looks like Darwin Cook's art. Mm-hmm. Do you what do you think of Cook's art? Do you like it? Do you not like it? Do you have issues I with it?
1: I love, love, love Cook's art. It reminds me of Harvey Kurtzman. It reminds me of um, God. What is his name now? Ah, I had it just a second ago. Um, but it it it's a very Art Deco sort of feel, and yet Bruce Tim. Thank you. It reminds me a little bit of Bruce Tim's work when mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. designed the Batman and Superman animated series, which right. became the JLU. There's such depth to it, but it also has that, you know, that weird ability. Not everybody can draw just a schmuck. Yeah. Darwin Cook can draw these incredibly beautiful women and this, you know, this big, strong, kind of Lee Marvin looking feller. And then some mousy little yuts. Right. The, like a who, car salesman. Double crossed him. Yeah. And have them all look right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you'll have a character who's. At one point, we introduced to Chester. Chester is this Canadian guy who who puts together deals for people. And you see him for like two panels, but Chester is always this smarmy guy who looks a little bit like Doc Venture. Mm -hmm. And he looks like the kind of guy where you go, yeah, he's always doing something. He's on the make. He's got his fingers in all these little criminal pies, and he thinks he's this big man. And every time you see him, that character just... Every facial expression, every moment, you look at it and you go, yep, that's the guy.
2: The one drawback that I have to some of his art is that uh, the women characters, especially the blondes, look a lot alike. And that caused me a little bit of confusion when I was trying to figure out, well, is this his wife or is this somebody else? And it did take a little bit of time to figure out who was who just in, from looking at the art. Right. Um, the other thing that's going to be really different for people who do decide to read this is this is a book that's a monochrome Colored book. It's all in shades of blue, uh, and more like it a like a teal green. To me. Teal green book. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm not good with greens. So oh, okay. All
2: right. Do. It's kind of a greenish blue, dark blue, whatever. A bluish color. Sea foam. <laughs> I'm a guy. It's blue.
1: Uh, it's green.
2: Cook has said that he is going to continue not this particular color, but he's going to continue that in the other books with that single color. And I liked it. At the first, it was a little bit of an offset because I was like, oh, man, I really want to see Cook's work in brilliant color like on the uh, dust jacket. And after a while, you get into it and it really works.
1: I like it better than fully colored because there's points where I don't know how to describe it. The art is sketched. Right. There's a sequence at the end where you have the three guys who are walking down the street drinking and singing. And if you look closely at that picture... It's just kind of blocked in, and the edges are there, and it's chunked in a little bit, and it really works. If you had a colorist who had to go in and deal with that, I feel like it would really undermine a lot of the crudity, a lot of the fun of that Mm -hmm. image.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, What are some drawbacks that you had with with this book?
1: um well i mentioned the misogyny i mentioned the violence there's you know there's a couple of harsh words in it it is it's very much an artifact of the times Mm -hmm. so if you go in expecting anything other than yeah my name is parker see and i'm gonna kill anybody who gets in my way because i want my forty-five thousand dollars, see if you go in expecting a lot of duality a lot of shading a lot of you know what in, in a modern thriller or in a modern story like this, you'll have, you know, they've, they've put so much, I guess, bait and switch into it. You have to do something different. Mm-hmm. Like the Ocean's Eleven series where mm-hmm. you get to the end of that movie or you get to certain points in the movie and they reveal plot points that you didn't know about. Mm-hmm. They had to add so much to it because these stories kind of have a straightforward way to them. They have a, Just basically a juggernaut. Parker comes to town. He's looking for the people who took his money. He finds the people who took his money. He kills the people who took his money and he takes his money. Yeah. It's a very simple storyline. And if you, if you expect modern bells and whistles and if you expect it to have that, you know, nouveau riche Quentin Tarantino pulp twist to it, you are going to be disappointed. That said, what you get is interesting. If you're not sensitive to yeah, you those know, gender issues, issues and, and violence issues. And at least they don't kill any children. Well, yeah, yeah. There aren't any children in this book, so they can't do that whole thing. We're like, oh, what about the children? I guess the problem that I had kind of the
2: it gets a little wordy where instead of a simple narration, mm-hmm. you go on for like three pages of text with, yeah. you know, a graphic design
1: going along with it.
4: That I think that was the problem occasionally- that bothered me.
1: That does occasionally bog the story down a bit because those first 27 pages are so beautiful and elegant and visual. And then we have the bits where he meets his wife and he talks. And then somewhere along the line, we get into this point where his wife is dead. And then it's four pages of big blocks of text.
2: And I'm just wondering, though, if that is because of space constraints, because you, we see this single panel of a woman tied up. Uh, up on the radiator, and it's it's a beautifully it's a beautiful picture, right? And with uh, Parker silhouetted silhouetted against the door, and it says she opened the door, and he clipped her. Um, let's see, base knuckles against the tip of her chin. Her eyes rolled back, and she felt like a piece of glass in the dark. He unplugged two dryers and ripped the cords loose in their bases. The woman hadn't moved. He tied her arms and ankles and used a piece of her slip a uh, piece of her slip to gag her. She had good legs, but not now. After it was over and Mall was dead, he'd want somebody then. He went back to the window in the other room and smoked. It was a bad position. If Maul came out and flagged a cab, then what? He might have to wait for the cab long enough for Parker to get downstairs, but maybe not. If Maul came out and had walked, that would be better. If he didn't come out at all, that would be worse. That's an entire page. That's all that dialogue and one single image that goes with it. And it goes on for pages after that.
1: Yeah. I don't think that that's necessarily a huge drawback. It's not.
2: I mean, especially when you're talking about an adaptation of a book, but it kind of... The good thing about it is it only happens once per per chapter, once per section.
1: Mm-hmm. So that kind of makes up for it. And I think that may be intentional. I think it may be designed to do that. Now, it might be. Mm-hmm. Would I necessarily have done it that way were I the one writing it? No. <laughs> I wonder, you know, I, I think the intention was to alternate the long text narration with yeah. – you know, bits where it's all wordless.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it works. She, it does work.
1: It does. It's overall, it's uh, I I kind I kind of like it.
2: The good twin says, "As a huge fan of crime slash noir comics, I was very pleased with this graphic novel. Darwin Cook does a great job, both visually and textually, capturing the mood and the feeling of this classic noir story. I'm giving this four and a half out of five slices of meatloaf." Matthew, it I is that actually, good. I, I really like it that much. I would almost give it for five, except for the wordy bits that's the the only drawback that I have.
1: I would go four out of five because you know as as a hip happening kind of p c guy, I am <laughs> troubled by certain portions of it in elements and i'm I'm not the person who can you know gloss over the fact that he walks in and he punches like three girls right, you know not necessarily uh, you shouldn't punch girls, not necessarily uh well. No, uh, it's it's not chivalrous. It's just more of a, yeah, maybe not so much for me at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Still, okay. definitely four out of five, easily. Very well drawn. It's a good story. It's one of those stories that's so solid that it doesn't need a whole lot of bells and whistles.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it, this is a revenge tale. The end.
2: Yep, exactly. Richard starts Parker the Hunter adapted and illustrated by darwin cook you can get it for 24.99 or less depending on where you shop around it's from idw publishing and that was our trade for this week all right everybody thank you so much for being a part of the major spoilers experience we do appreciate you downloading and listening and putting all those five-star comments up there on the itunes we appreciate that next week we're going to do something almost 180 degrees from uh, parker the hunted We're going to take a trip back to Chowder Bay as brothers Jack and Benny Putnam continue to have adventures during their forced summer vacation. That's right, we're talking about Saltwater Taffy, a great children's book. This one is Volume 3, The Truth About About Dr. True. That is next week on the show because we know that you love comics, and we do too, and we will talk with you next time. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at majorspoilers.com. Visit Major Spoilers at majorspoilers.com and be sure to check out the Major Spoilers forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at twitter.com/majorspoilers and on MySpace at myspace.com/majorspoilers.
0: What a major spoiler What a major spoiler If I'm Stark Raven, it's like a man of iron I might not be surprised to find That I might actually have the heart cold To follow an entire storyline would I really even need To read upon all those escapades I mean, who needs such distractions When your sister's such a babe But the downside is such a beast Being shot up in a me being in the Middle place. With a gang sun-throwing soldier what a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler. Wow, wow, wow. What a major spoiler.
1: Major Spoilers Podcast, copyright 2009.